Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for Scaling Up H2O. And today we are doing a special Pinks and Blues episode. Of course, you out there in the Scaling Up Nation know that we've recently gone to weekly podcast. Boy, what a lot of work it is for yours truly, but I tell you, I love doing it because I'm getting your feedback about how you wanted this show each and every week, and I am pleased that I am able to do that for you. In order to do that, I need for you to do something for me. Each and every week, we are running through all your questions, so I am going through them at a faster rate than ever. I need you to replenish that reserve, so go Go to ScalingUpH2O.com and you have two choices of how you can do that. You can record your voice directly on the website by clicking on the send voicemail and you can ask your question right here on Scaling Up and I might play it on the air and I can answer your question for the entire Scaling Up Nation. The second way you can do that is you can go to the show ideas page and you can send me an email straight from that site to let me know what it is you want to ask for your question. And that's exactly what these people have done. So I am going to answer questions from the Scaling Up Nation. So let's get right to it. So one person asks, he goes into that I talk a lot about becoming more efficient on testing. So his question is, what are some of your tips for me to become faster at running my tests? It's a good question, but I want to talk about the question first. A lot of people think that they get faster at running tests by cutting corners or not running certain tests. Folks, we are water treatment professionals and that is not an option. We always have to run the test to the best of the ability of us and the test to be run and that is non-negotiable. So taking any liberties with procedures or pencil whipping, I think Jim Lukinich calls that the graphite cellulose method, that is not a for a water treatment professional. You are hurting the industry if you do that. So the question asked, how do we become faster at running the test? And I'm going to add as properly as we can run them. Because after all, if we have bad information or no information about the system, how are we ever going to figure out what we need to do to make our adjustments? We're water treatment professionals, folks. So now I'm stepping off my soapbox and answering the question. So the first thing that I would encourage you to do is what's your baseline? When you run your test, when everything is ready to go, how long does it take you from the opening of your test kit, running all your tests, cleaning up, and closing your test kit? And that is your baseline number. And then look at that. With the number of tests that you have to run, the complexity of those tests, does that seem reasonable And I think you know the answer to how efficient you are in running these tests. I've said it on other shows, but if you have to look at directions to run your test, you don't know your test. So maybe even I should take a step back 
And before you figure out what your baseline of running tests are, you need to make sure you completely understand how to run your test from memory with no mistakes and you can consistently get the same answer. Once you're there, how long does it take you to run your tests? And I like to say, actually it's people in my company like to say, from the opening of the test kit, from the closing of the test kit, what is the time in between? So that includes the cleanup as well. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna take out a stopwatch and you're gonna figure out what that time is, and then that's gonna give you something to build on. Folks, I gotta tell you, when I was working with my dad, I used to love to do this because in addition to working by yourself, you start going in the same accounts over and over again, and it can get boring. Again, my father told me if I ever got bored in this industry, I was doing something wrong, and this was one of the things that I chose to do so I didn't get bored as I was learning more things to learn about the system. So for example, I would go out, I would compete against myself when I would run my test in every single account. And I noticed that just the simple fact that I was keeping track of how long it took me to run those tests, that made me a little bit better. Things get better when you look at them. So simply knowing your baseline, knowing how long it takes, and competing against yourself to not sacrifice standards, but to make yourself more efficient, I promise that will make you better. Some other things that you can do is, one, you never want to sacrifice the ability of your test to tell you the right result. So never become faster than your accuracy can allow you to take. So what I would suggest with that is to build a standard or take a really large water sample and test it. And as you're trying to get faster, you know what you're supposed to get each and every time you run that test, and now you can ensure that you haven't left anything out. Another thing you can do is work with others. It's so fun to have a competition with somebody else who's doing the same thing because now you both are not only learning from each other, but you're challenging each other. So who can you challenge to see if you can make each other better with running your tests. This next tip is where I think a lot of us just never think about. Experiment with the order in which you run your test. Somebody might have shown you the order that they ran their test and you never thought about it and you just simply run those tests in that order over and over and over again. Well, folks, that might not be the most efficient way to run your tests. What I like to do is I like to look at all the procedures of all the tests that I run on a regular basis, and I want to run my longest ones to develop first. Most of the time, that's silica. Silica requires a 12-minute development period, and I can do a lot of things in 12 minutes. So the thing my father used to always tell me is you should never be waiting on your test. Your test should be waiting on you. So think about how much time you're spending waiting for something to develop. And if you are finding yourself waiting for tests to develop, that's probably telling you, that is definitely telling you that you need to change the order in which you run your tests. 
Now keep in mind too, your test can't wait too long. There's some tests that need to be read immediately. Free chlorine is an example of that. But there are other tests that have like a 10 minute waiting time, so there's no reason that we can't run tests like that and have them wait on us so we can run them when it's our time to run them. Another thing you might want to look at is how you're collecting samples and how organized you are collecting samples. If you're on a multi-campus area, will you save more time by doing all of your tests at one location or does it make more sense to go to the various eight locations and run your tests separately? Now that is a case-by-case -case basis and I can tell you that I can come up with reasons to do both depending on campuses that I'm thinking of. There are some where it just makes sense to grab all of your samples and there's no really good place to run them except one mechanical room. So we'll grab all those samples, run them in that one mechanical room, and now we know what to do as we are walking around that campus. Now we're not just grabbing samples, when we're in those mechanical rooms grabbing those samples, we're looking at inventory levels and we've already mentally serviced that account so we know what to expect. And if we don't see what we are expecting, we're making notes so we can bring the things that we need to accurately service that account when we come back after running the test. So if you're going there 15 times, it doesn't matter how fast your test running is, you're not gonna be saving any time that way. Now there are other places where it's so spread out, it just makes sense to run them separately. So you need to think about that, but that's probably the point. If you're not thinking about how you're collecting and running samples, don't just assume the way you were trained to do that was the best way, experiment with that making sure that you never compromise quality. So those are a couple of tips that I can think up off of the top of my head, but I want you to really think how valuable this is. So imagine five minutes. We just say five minutes for running our complete battery of tests. Well, big deal, five minutes. Well, let's say we normally service six accounts in a day. Well, folks, that's a half an hour that we're going to save a day. And over a week's time, that's two and a half hours that we are going to realize just by making ourselves more efficient at running the test. You multiply that out for the month, you multiply that out for the year. Folks, this is serious time. Five minutes is huge. And you're not gonna start with five minutes, you might start with 30 seconds, and that's gonna to build to one minute. Maybe that builds to two minutes, but if you don't start looking at that, nothing will change. So my final answer to that question after all of that is what's the best tip to run my test faster? It's to want to run your test faster. Another member of the Scaling Up Nation writes in, they want to know how they can get better consistency when multiple people are running the same test. Folks, this has been an issue that I think us water treaters have wrestled with for years, especially when we have customers that are helping us out with running tests in between our visits. 
So you need to look at technique just like we were talking about before. And most of the time our customers will have drop count test kits. Uh, sometimes they might have spectrophotometers. Those are a little less easy to mess up in my opinion, but a lot of times they don't wanna pay that in order to get that accuracy. The biggest thing that I see that people make mistakes is how they hold the bottles when they do either their titrations or they're adding different reagents. So remember, you want those bottles to be straight up and down, and any deviation from straight up and down could change the size of the drop and nine times out of 10, that's where I have found the issues. The other most common thing that I see is dirty glassware or dirty sampleware. If we're testing the same thing each and every time in the same vial, maybe we don't have to clean it every time, but folks, let's face it, the cleaner our stuff is, the better results we're gonna get with that stuff. It doesn't take that long to rinse things out, to clean them, to store them upside down, to dry them, and then they are ready to go each and every time when we are depending on them. Now, my personal preference is I rinse everything with deionized water, and all of our customers have a DI bottle there so they can rinse their glassware. Now, as far as us in the field and our company, we wash our glassware at least weekly. We've got a special dishwasher for it and everything but if your stuff is not clean you don't know what other stuff is on that stuff probably the final thing that I can think of to help you with that question is have you run your test side beside the person that you're having issues with? Or has everybody run those together? A lot of times when we train customers or maybe another employee, we'll show them that we can run the test, but we never see them run the test. So when we all do that together, we can look at things like, are they holding the bottle correctly? Are there little things that they are doing that could be contributing to why we're not getting the same thing. I did this recently and this was after a training that we had done so I know we covered this the customer just forgot and when they were testing for sulfite they were taking the sample directly out of the boiler with no cooling at all well folks there's no wonder that they were getting a different result but here's the key I didn't know it and when I asked them if they were running the test the exact same way that I taught them to run it of course, the answer was yes. When we ran it together, I immediately saw what the issue was and we were able to solve that. So maybe getting more involved might help you with that as well. I gotta commend you if you are realizing that other people in your company or some of your customers are getting different results than you are, you are doing your job as a professional water trader. You're not just writing down numbers. Please folks, don't ever write down numbers. Again, Jim calls that the graphite cellulose method. That does not belong anywhere in water treatment and end users if you're listening yes part of your job might be to run these tests and maybe the water treater you have isn't looking at them like they should unlike this water treater that we're talking about right now but do your part if you're going to take the time to have a log and to have a test learn how to run it properly so we can all use that information to make the program better 
Third question asks, why do we filter some samples and some we don't filter? Well, that's true. We have filters in our test kits and some tests require filterings where others don't. And then I've seen some people that don't even know why that filter is in their test kit. So let's talk about that question. One of the tests that comes to mind about filtering is the phosphate test for boilers. And once you get your sample, you then filter it and then you do the phosphate procedure, whatever one that you decide that you're going to use. Well, the reason you filter that one is you want to know how much and I don't know what to call it other than call it free phosphate you have in the system. And what that means is it hasn't combined with anything else in the system like calcium. So what the filter will do is it will filter out anything that the phosphate has bonded with. So now in your sample, you have just phosphate that's ready to go to work and bond with something else. So that's what that filter does. And another time you might use a filter is to prove to a customer that they have a dirty system, but you can filter that out. And everybody in the Scaling Up Nation knows that I am a strong proponent of getting a filter feeder on closed loop systems and having a sand filter on cooling towers. Folks, there's only so much stuff that we can do chemically or using a device or however you're treating water if we do not have the mechanical aspect of filtration, it is so hard to get our job done and sometimes it is just impossible. So we might use the filter just to show, hey, look at all the stuff that I can take out of this water. And as you know, Mr. Customer, that water is the best heat transfer medium out there but we're not just transporting water, we're transporting all this water and garbage floating around in it. If we can get all this garbage out, we can clean up the heat transfer surfaces, we can clean up the heat transfer medium, which is water, and that is going to translate into savings. It will cost you less money to heat and cool this facility. And that's ROI, return on investment. This filter is going to cost you X, but because we don't have all these dirty surfaces to transfer the energy through, to transfer the heat through, it's going to pay for itself in two, three, four, five months. So hopefully that allows you to understand what some of the filters in your test kits do and why some some tests specifically ask you to filter. My final question is asking specifically about episode 55 where we talked about the little blue pill in the bottom of Legionella samples, the thiosulfate. And what that does, that eliminates, that neutralizes any of the oxidizers that are in the system. So you have a sample right then and there, not a sample that can be worked on with whatever oxidizers in the system. So this person wants to ask, why can you not take your sample if you're missing that pill? Because the tower doesn't have a pill. So what's the difference? Why can't we grab the sample anyway? And that's a great question. And it's actually one I'm so glad you asked because I thought about it after I published that episode. So thank you for that. Scaling Up Nation is making scaling up better. I appreciate that. 
So you are exactly right. The tower does not have a little blue pill in it, but your test does. And here's how I want this to make sense to the Scaling Up Nation. When you take a test, the clock stops right there. So I took a test at 10.22 a.m. and I am only sampling exactly what is going on at 10.22 a.m., nothing after that, even though that the tower will continue to use the oxidizer and sterilize or come down whatever it's trying to kill, the test can't do that. It has to stop at that moment in time. And that's why that little blue pill is in there. It neutralizes the oxidizer and it says, this is what you have at 1022. Folks, I gotta tell you, I love this new format of coming at you weekly. I love that people are asking questions to me because I know it takes pressure off of me so I know that I am doing exactly what you want me to do because you're asking me these questions. Otherwise, I'm guessing, sometimes I guess right, sometimes I might not guess right, but take the guesswork out and help me by submitting your questions. I hope that some of the things that we talked about here from listeners in the Scaling Up Nation will motivate you to do something different, to be better, to make the water treatment industry better because you are working in the water treatment industry. Folks, I'll talk to you next week.